Hey guys, I had arts journalist Carrie Lingle on the show with me this week. I don't know Carrie personally, um, but I know that his theater reviews are somewhat of a staple in town, it seems like. Um, so I was definitely excited to get him uh, on the show with me so we could talk a little bit about his kind of unique perspective on the arts community in town. You know, I feel like he's he's got a really unique uh, viewpoint from which to kind of see how the arts scene is growing and what's changing and you know what needs improvement and so we really try to dive into it um you know talking about his role and how he got into it and what he can do with it um in town to influence arts uh, and so i really enjoyed this time to talk with him i hope he enjoyed it as well um i feel like i was uh, not super articulate with some of my questioning but he is a professional as you can hear and he gets through it far more articulately than i could expect so enjoy carrie lingle Welcome to Starving Artist Phoenix. This is Tony Machete. I'm with Carrie Lingle today. How are you doing? Good. How are you? I'm fantastic. Thank you. Um, so I am really excited that I got a chance to talk to you because you're kind of a household name uh, for a lot of the other people that I talk to. Uh, you know, everybody knows Carrie Lingle. Everybody knows your theater reviews and your arts reviews in general for the Republic, Crazy Central. So, I mean, let's start right at the beginning. How did you? How did you end up an arts critic? Well, I just sort of ended up. Um, I am not uh, one of those people who started out with a particular career goal and pursued it with a single-minded fascination. Um, what I always wanted to do was be a writer. Uh, from the very beginning, I started writing when I was a little kid. Uh, my grandmother and I and, and my sister would make up stories and take, take turns giving a sentence in the story. and. One day she uh, typed one of those up, and then uh, after that I started dictating stories to her and then writing my own and having her type them up for me. Um, I still have books one and two of Carrie Lengel's stories. Uh, they are awful kid stuff, you know, that stuff that a seven-year-old would do. But, you know, even putting together a beginning, middle, and end at that age is something that, I mean, not everybody can do. Not everybody has the mindset to think that far ahead. Yeah, everything being relative, I'm, I'm sure everyone thought I was very precocious. Um, <laughs> you get older and more experienced and you, you realize how rare true genius is. So I'm a really smart guy. Always got great grades, great test scores. And, uh, it was when I was young, it was very important to be the smartest kid in the room. Uh, as you get older and more mature, you realize that um, no matter how smart and talented you are, there's always the next level up. Um, so writing was what got me into it. When I went to college, I was a double major in creative writing and journalism. Full disclosure, journalism had to be a minor in the end because I didn't want to do one more semester. Um, just to, so no one says I claimed I graduated with a journalism degree. <laughs> I did not, technically. Um, but in both uh, college and high school, I did both creative writing and journalism, worked on the student newspaper. And it was really about writing for me. 
Um, so was journalism just, journalism just kind of a natural offshoot of that? Like you, you were exploring all these different kinds of writing and you just fell into it? Yeah, I mean, it, I mean, it's basically there are two ways to make a living as a writer, as it, and one is <laughs> as a creative writer and one is as a journalist. Um, and, you know, I, I had to at some point um, face the fact that I was not a good poet. Uh, I wrote a lot of poetry between the ages of 15 and 20. Um, I'd say there's one poem that emerged from my college career that I'm not embarrassed by <laughs> uh, at this point in my life. I had to face the fact that I might have been glib as a writer, but I was not really an artist. Um, so I went into journalism. I started out as a copy editor, meaning I was writing headlines and fixing people's grammar. Did that for four years, and then I had a chance to become a reporter. And I was a general assignment reporter covering entertainment and things to do. Uh, I did a part-time beat for a while, uh, right around the turn of the century, covering the local music scene. Um, so I was at a lot of punk shows, and rap rock was really big then. Uh, neither of those things were necessarily my personal um, things. Uh, but that was that was the job, and and I think that that you know the the career that I've had, which is um, has been very fun and very uh, educational, has has been a mix of things that I'm passionate about and and things that I was approaching, I guess, more objectively and more as a reporter. Um, I wrote a beer column for a while, which was my big I sort sort of think starting education on what criticism meant and. Uh, and sort of my fraught relationship with the notion of expertise. Um, I knew I was interested in craft beer, and uh, they were they wanted to start a beer column, and I was like the only guy in the features department they thought might be able to do it. That doesn't mean I was qualified to write that column. I absolutely was not. Um, but I knew more than the next guy or the next girl. <laughs> Um, you knew enough the that when they role. thought beer, they thought Carrie Langle. So. They knew I was exploring it, and but I explored it through the column. Um, I had a lot of fun doing it. I wrote reviews, but I also did like feature stories and interviews with local brewers. Um, traveled down to Bisbee to meet the uh, Electric Dave, who did Electric Dave's Brewery. Um, and I made some mistakes. Uh, the One of the owners of Four Peaks uh, got frustrated with me a couple of times because I did some things that sort of demonstrated my lack of expertise. Um, and he um, corrected me, none too gently. <laughs> um, and he was right to do so, of course, because, you know, when... But the thing was, and what I learned from that experience was, as I got more expert and I learned all those things and stopped making those mistakes, uh, the column got less good. Uh, because I wasn't really exploring anymore. I, was, I knew enough now that I could just say, thumbs up, thumbs down, this Hefeweizen lacks the quintessential banana aroma that you expect from this style. You had a mental checklist kind of that you were right. trying to check and, in the box. And they yeah. sort of devolved into being report card grading systems. And, and that is why you know, expertise is an, is an issue that I talk a lot about because you're interested in theater in particular, um, some of the very best theater critics in the country and in the history of theater criticism are theater artists who are deeply steeped in that tradition and can bring all the expertise of knowing what it means to act a role, what it means to direct a play, 
what it means to design lining for a show. They bring that expertise and they write about it with incredible passion and precision and insight. And some of the worst theater critics are also people who come out of the theater world who are very expert. And all they have to say is to comment on these sort of very technical issues without really connecting dots or, or giving deeper insights. And, you know, the vast majority of criticism is consumeristic, thumbs up, thumbs down, this is good, this is bad. Um, and that's not good criticism because it's not fun to, to read. And it's also uh, one of the things that, one of the reasons that criticism is dying. Because if all you're interested in is the consumer aspect of whether Dunkirk is a really good film or not, you don't actually go read the review, you go to Rotten Tomatoes and you find out what the score is, right? Exactly. Um, so that's that's not that's not criticism that gives people something of value. I like that, and I, I like just kind of going back to a comment you made at the first that uh, you mentioned that you were a glib writer, um, but not necessarily like a writer, of, I guess, about quality or something when it came to the fiction. Um, but I feel like glib goes a long way when it comes to journalism. You can do a lot with glib. Um, I think that I mean, just like you were saying that even if what people think that they're reading is something objective and analytical, I think that there's still so much to be said for putting color into that. So, I mean, how, how present is that in your mind when you're writing something? How, how aware are you of trying to reach that balance between entertaining to read and doing your job? Probably less aware than I was when I was younger. I mean, I've been doing this for 22 years. Um, at some point you develop habits of mind and they are a danger. Um, but, you know, when you're in a day-to-day, week-to-week grind of producing stuff, you sort of do rely on those habits. Um, my job as a journalist is, is varied. Um, I am the theater critic for the Arizona Republic and azcentral.com, uh, AZ and that is maybe 20% of my job. Um, I am also the reporter, the only full-time reporter covering the arts here in the Valley. Um, for that publication. And that means I am, one, a features reporter, meaning I'm writing personality profiles and just straight event advancers uh, about things that are coming up that people might be interested in. And, you know, that part of the job sort of requires me to develop strong relationships with sources and organizations and know that I'm, I'm sort of working in partnership with them uh, they want me to cover their shows to promote them, and um, but then I'm also the news reporter. So if there's a controversy, um, if a theater company has a million-dollar deficit, or if a, an art museum has a backroom controversy over the new president who's in charge, hypothetically, hypothetically, no, those are those are stories right, you can yeah. Google. Um, then I have to approach them as a news reporter. So I'm a news reporter and a features reporter, which are overlapping but different jobs, and also a critic, which is a very different hat. And, you know, one of the most difficult things is that I, you know, part of my job is developing relationships with people in the arts community um, as a reporter. And then my job as a critic is to, as I describe it, um, you know, my job as a critic is to say in public the things that polite people reserve for the car ride home. Uh, and that can be very difficult to, you know, there are people that you may like personally a tremendous amount. And then you see them on stage and you can't really say that they were great. Um, and that's, that's a really 
challenging line to walk. Now, that's not the question you asked. You asked about uh, the line between um, writing for fun, I guess, and, and writing to be informative, maybe? Was... Yeah, writing to amuse and writing to a form, I guess. Yeah. Um, I am, I've also come to terms with the fact that I am not the cleverest of all writers. Like, So if I want to uh, read a theater review just for the pure pleasure um, of reading that critic's words here in the Valley, I'm going to pick Robert Pela over myself. Um, he's an extremely clever, very bright, um, fun writer. He's also insistently mean. Um, <laughs> and that's one of the things that makes him fun to write. Uh, excuse me, fun to read. And I'm sure it makes what he writes fun to write. But it's not me. That's not my personality. That's not who I am. I'm not going to try to do that or be that. Um, so, yes, I'm always trying to write something in as engaging a way as I can. But I also have ceased trying to be who I'm not uh, and try to write like someone else. That's fair. And I mean, I'm glad you did kind of bring up uh, just the... Uh, I mean, there are certain stigmas that hang around being a critic. And specifically, I feel like an arts critic um, just because... There is, I feel like, this kind of conception, I don't like what you were referencing before about like the idea that uh, so many critics are, are people who may have at one point been involved in what they're criticizing, but have taken a step back. And that's said somewhat pejoratively a lot of the time. Um, sure. So, yeah. um, there, there's a perception that critics are failed artists, yeah. uh, which I guess in my case is kind of true in the sense that <laughs> I wanted to be a poet um, at one point in my life. Uh, course I don't criticize poetry <laughs> um, so the only thing I really write criticism of right now um, earlier in my career I did a lot of music criticism yeah. uh, wrote a lot of CD reviews and stuff like that but I am the theater critic now I do not I cover the ballet I do not review the ballet and that's because I despite going to many of their shows and learning as much as I can about it I do not feel competent to critique uh, the ballet and its world-class choreographer. Um, I, I, as much as I enjoy the work that he does, I don't feel I have enough knowledge of that to say something intelligent on a regular <laughs> basis. So the only thing that I am, am a critic of, or claim to be a critic of right now, is theater. And that's something that I, I did not do. Um, I took one drama class in junior high school, I was a terrible, terrible actor, but it was never <laughs> my dream to be an actor. That was never... So um, you can call me a failed artist if you want, but you certainly can't call me a failed actor because <laughs> I never tried. <laughs> now, so, that, I mean, that is interesting that you say that you, you feel like maybe you don't have the, uh, the um, technical knowledge to criticize something beyond theater, uh, like ballet, but um, you do feel comfortable with theater. So, I mean, what was kind of the turning point for you? Where Was it something that you actively thought, like, I, I understand this now? Well, um, that happened long after I started doing it. So um, here's my, my journey with theater. Uh, yeah. My introduction to theater was at the age of 10. Um, I was born in Oregon, southern Oregon, just a hop, skip, and a jump away from Ashland, where the Oregon Shakespeare Festival is, which, if you're not familiar with it, is a world-class... Um, theater company uh, that people travel from all over the world to see. So the first thing I saw at the age of 10 was Romeo and Juliet. Uh, my father took me. Uh, the next year I saw Cymbeline. Uh, I was fascinated with the severed head. Um, I responded 
to it first, I guess, though, as an aspiring writer, and it, it launched me first into a love of Shakespeare. Um, as an adult, when I was in college, uh, I had a, a teacher, an English teacher, who was also a playwright, and one of the things he had us do, I don't maybe it was extra credit, was come see a production of one of his plays. <laughs> um, so as an adult from that point, I added theater to my range of interests. So I didn't, I wasn't a seasoned subscriber to anything, but I was a Shakespeare buff, so if Arizona Theater Company did Macbeth, I bought tickets to that. If they did something new and intriguing, Pulitzer Prize winning play, like um, uh, Anna in the Tropics, I would buy a ticket to that. Uh, the theater critic at the time would tell me Stray Cat Theater is doing a, a show right now that is really good. You should go see it. I'd go see it. I'm going to butcher this title. The first thing I saw from them was uh, something about a fourth grade love letter slash suicide, which was literally a play about an elementary school suicide, which blew my mind because it was not what I thought of as theater. So that was it was a it was one interest among many. Um, but Kyle Lawson, who was a longtime theater critic um, for the Arizona Republic, uh, was his health was, was failing. Um, and the hardest thing for him to do was to get out to shows. And he had uh, coughing fits. And so he started sending me as his backup. Uh, the first show I reviewed, first theater show I reviewed for the Arizona Republic was the national tour of Thoroughly Modern Millie. Uh, at Gamage, and I think I look, I've looked back at my early reviews, and I think it's a very fine review. Um, it was not a review that reflected a great deal of expertise about the niceties of stagecraft, um, but what it did do was engage with the material of that show, um, and you know, it was sort of a feminist critique, if you will, <laughs> and so it, it sort of started as. One thing among many that I was doing, but I went to more and more shows until uh, by the time he retired in 2008, I was reviewing almost all the shows and I had sort of become the theater guy by default. Um, and that means that I was learning a lot of things that I wasn't expert at. Like, like I said, I was interested in serious, edgy plays. I was interested in Shakespeare. I was not a musicals buff. I had seen some, but I did not walk around the house singing the score to Oklahoma, and still do not. Um, in the years that I've been doing the job, I've seen a tremendous number of musicals, from community theater productions here in town to, you know, a couple dozen productions on Broadway that I traveled to see. I know a lot more um, and have developed my own ideas and my own taste about it, but I did not come to it from already a place of I know everything um, but that's what fueled my writing for most of those you know first five six years was not being an expert it was using each review as an opportunity to explore and engage and learn uh, about the art form similar to your journey with the beer I exactly um, which is the reason I tell the beer column story um, and in many ways, I find being a theater critic more challenging now than I did when I started because there's a lot more, you know, the first time you review Thoroughly Modern Millie, you say everything you have to say about Thoroughly Modern Millie. Then you see it again. And what do you do then? And you find yourself falling back on 
the choreography was pretty good, the singing could have been better, yada, 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 and it becomes that report card that I don't want to write, but sometimes that's all I got unless I, unless my ideas about the show have been transformed by this production uh, or unless I have changed enough that I'm seeing it, you know, but if I, if I don't have a significantly different reaction to the material itself, it's like, well, I kind of already said what I thought of that. <laughs> and I'm, I'm glad you brought that up, actually, specifically with 30 Modern Millie, because it is one of those few shows that you see every season. Someone's doing it. Someone's doing Oklahoma. Someone's doing The King and I. You know, it, it's just a staple. Um, and I, I know I read a, a previous article that you did uh, reviewing um, Jesus Christ Superstar. Someone was doing mm-hmm. Jesus Christ Superstar, I forget who. Um, and you kind of said at the very beginning of it, almost as if it's a dec- disclaimer, like, I don't really like this show. <laughs> so um, when it comes to those situations where it's, you know, it's those shows that everybody knows, even the, the layman knows something about, I mean, how do you separate your feelings for the show versus the feelings for the production? My answer to that is that you do it differently every time. Um, I mean, you don't... You, the battle is against the rut. Um, and so really you kind of have to find your way into each and every review. So it's, you know, what do I find most interesting? And sometimes it's the material and sometimes it's the way the material is handled. It just, it varies. You just have to find what is, what's your best take on this show. And sometimes the best take is less about this individual production and more about what's on the page. And sometimes your best take is about how they did the best possible version of this or how they absolutely <laughs> butchered it um, or how they totally, you know, it's, it, it just depends. You, but you kind of have to approach each one on its own terms and, and not, it's like, some reviews are more objective than others. I, I am not aiming for the same level of objectivity in every review. Um, if it's something I'm passionate about and attached to, I'm going to bring that passion and that attachment to what I'm writing about because that's where the juice is. Um, if I don't have that passion and attachment, then I have to find juice elsewhere. I, I think I get where you're coming from on that. I think that was kind of clear in uh, the recent review you did of uh, Wonder Woman as well, in that um, the review itself almost kind of got, got buried within the rest of the article because your review of the movie was, I mean, what most people would say of a, a well-made superhero movie nowadays. It was pretty good. It was, it was a good movie. It was well-made. Um, nothing, nothing too bombastic about it. Nothing too like, stood out too much about it. Um, but I think the, the article itself seemed to be more around the idea of like, wh- how people were reacting to the movie. And so I think that's a good example of that. Yes, um, we have to be clear. And sometimes, you know, the, the journalistic terms are not always obvious to everybody. Uh, that was not a formal review. You called it an article. Okay, excuse better, me, yeah. which, which is fine. But we have, a theater, we have a movie critic. His name is Bill Goodykunst. And he reviewed Wonder Woman for us. Right. I did not. Um, so I wrote a take on it. Um, but it was very much about the conversation that hap- was happening in that moment about Fair. Wonder Woman and about, you know, what does that movie... So, I mean, the point of that article was, I think the headline was, Wonder Woman is great because we need it to be great. Mm-hmm. And my take on it was, it's really not a great film, but that's not the point and that's not the reason everyone is reacting to it the way it is. <laughs> um, and that's a kind of writing that I'm trying to do more of mm-hmm. um, for a number of reasons. Um, but sort of approaching pop culture in general, um, not 
as reviews per se that are about thumbs up, thumbs down, uh, or a consumeristic good or bad, but are more about bringing a, a different kind of perspective to it. And one of the reasons I'm trying to do that more is because we are living in a new digital era in journalism, and uh, we are, you know, in the olden days when your stories just got printed in the newspaper, uh, you didn't really know how they landed until, unless someone wrote a letter to the editor about you and tried to get you fired. Um, but every article we publish online, we know exactly how many times someone went to that article. And obviously, uh, we are charged with trying to get more people to go to that. This is a real challenge for someone who covers the yurts because uh, those stories generally do not get a tremendous amount of clicks. Um, if that's the only thing that mattered to my bosses, I wouldn't have a job right now. Um, the print product still matters and those print readers still matter. But, you know, the largest arts organization in the state is the Phoenix Symphony. Um, they have a huge subscriber base, multi-million dollar budget, dozens and dozens of full-time employees. Um, I don't write a lot of stories about the symphony that 2,000 people click on online. Um, their audience, maybe it's because their audience is older, they're not looking for that coverage online, uh, maybe they're still looking for it in the printed paper, which is why we still do it. Um, but, you know, the things that work online are, are not, are often not the things that we felt traditionally were important to cover just because they're important to cover. And that is the real challenge for arts journalism nationwide right now, is trying to figure out how to remain viable when we know exactly how many people are reading that article. Now, I want to cycle back a little uh, to the um, Wonder Woman article later on, too, because there's something that you brought up that I want to touch on a little bit later, too. But um, talking about the digital platform, I, I've seen more and more, it seems like uh, a lot of the things that are showing up on there are like list-based articles, you know, the 25 books for the summer, mm -hmm. um, and like the mini articles that you've been doing that are like kind of the, the weekly recap of like, here's... Here's a shortened version of the, the reviews that I'm doing with the, with the stars present right up front, kind of concise to the point. You even summarize it at the bottom, the bottom line. So, I mean, those kind of new ways of packaging what you're writing, I mean, how, how do you interact with those? I mean, how, how does that kind of change, change you as a writer, I guess? I mean, is it something that you had to really adapt to? Or? Most definitely. And I would <laughs> say that I'm, I have not necessarily adapted as well as some of my colleagues. Um, you know, like I said, I got into this to be a writer. Mm -hmm. And I think what that means is, you know, you, to become a writer, you want to express yourself. When the clicks become important, uh, there are a lot of ways you can respond to that. Um, but very few of them are necessarily really expressing yourself. Um, some of the best reviews, best criticism I write are nuanced. Um, they are not raves, they are not rants. Um, and those don't get read. Um, you know, especially now that social media is so important to what people read, because they don't go to, to arts.azcentral.com to look for stories. They go to Facebook and see what their friends are sharing. Uh, so in the theater community, 
I know that I can get a review shared on Facebook well, I if I write a rave. All I gotta do, all I gotta do is write a full-throated rave and say everyone's a genius. And you know, there are critics in this town who essentially do exactly that. Um, and they get shared because they are patting everybody on the head and saying, you guys are great and I love you. And, uh, um, and that's gonna work. So you but, gotta write a review that uh, the chorus member's grandma wants to share, basically. <laughs> that everybody involved in it wants yeah. to share, yes. Um, and I'm a terrible liar, which is why I never became an actor. Um, and I can't, I can't manufacture a rave. I cannot, I cannot generate the illusion of enthusiasm where I do not feel it. Um, and that means that while I have written, some very heartfelt raves um, that got shared by everybody involved. Uh, I don't. I can't do it just for clicks. Um, another way you can do it just for clicks is to try to generate outrage, which is to uh, write a hot take about how this thing is, you know, violating someone's sense of gender correctness or whatever. Where you could go on the other end. Uh, and you know, try to do the same thing for, for a right-wing re readership. Uh, that's another way to generate clicks, and it's also something I'm not willing to do. So yes, it's absolutely been an adjustment. We've done a lot of experimentation. The short reviews was uh, one of the things that absolutely helped. Um, you know, one of the reasons we do that. I don't know how much I don't know how much inside information I should share, but. Um, <laughs> You know, one of the things we care about is, is not just how many clicks in total we get, but we, we care how many clicks a particular story gets. Um, you know, the, the average clicks per story, because that tells, uh, you know, advertisers or whoever what kind of reach and penetration we have. So what is the advantage to doing the short reviews, which sometimes were a summary of a full review, but sometimes that was the only review that that show got. Uh, the advantage of that is anyone who's searching for the review of any of those four shows is directed to that <laughs> one take. So it um, aggregated the readers <laughs> who were interested in, because again, how do people come to stories these days? They come through social media and they come through Google search. So, you know, and this is the other thing about um, the problem with consumeristic reviewing is I discovered that the people who are interested in reading theater reviews are usually not people who are looking for guidance as to whether to see a show. They're people who already saw the show and they want to know whether they agree or disagree with the critic. Um, so they Google, you know, Arizona Theater Company disgraced review. And that's how they come to that review. And so how do we get more clicks per story is we put all those reviews in one take. Um, it's not my instinct to be guided by that sort of thing, but it's absolutely necessary in this day and age. Um, I, I'm, I don't have any illusions about that, and I'm not indignant about it, and I'm not, you know, pounding on the table to for the old ways because, you know, many things the old in many ways the old ways didn't work. I mean, sometimes if you're confronted with the evidence that um, something that you've written isn't striking a chord with people, then then you maybe should think about writing something different or writing it in a different way, because that, in the end, is, is the job and what I'm being paid for. Now, speaking on 
the idea of generating outrage, um, which I know you mentioned you were something that you were trying to avoid. And going back to the point I wanted to make about Wonder Woman, uh, which is great, you're doing all of my uh, connections for me and my segues for me. Um, so that, I mean, that article kind of touched on, I think, the, the idea of like, this, this is an important movie because of the topics it addresses, because of the subject matter more so than the actual plot, more than anything mm-hmm. technical about it. Um, and I, I feel like in theater especially, uh, a lot of plays and musicals and, and just kind of uh, like performances maybe get a li- that little bit of extra recognition because not so much the quality of the production, but the subject matter it covers. So I'm kind of curious, like from your outsider's perspective, like seeing all the different types of theater that comes up especially all the new works and things like is that a trend that you see it all as maybe difficult subject matter for subject matter's sake hmm uh that's an interesting and kind of a tough question um i don't perceive that playwrights are writing about difficult subject matter for the sake of controversy i think i think they're writing about things that they think are are pertinent now and and that they want to write about um so so no i'm not sure i mean mean, maybe if you wanted to drop some specific examples we could talk about them um i guess on on kind of a big scale like the show rent i mean it's deals very dicey subject matter very beloved for it and obviously like it's it's very heartfelt and sincere but at this point i mean it's it has kind of become like another thoroughly modern melee. It has become, I feel like, done so much that everybody knows Rent, everybody knows the songs, they're all singing along with it, and I feel like it kind of maybe dilutes the subject matter a little bit. Um, so I'm kind of curious, like, if when you see these new works coming up that, that kind of touch on some of the same same things, I guess I'm trying to put the words out in the, the most clear way I can, just that, do you ever feel like, well, like the article you recently wrote, um, about the amount of, like, the boundary pushing in youth plays. Uh-huh. I mean, at a certain point, yeah, a director is wanting to do something like that because it's their purest vision um, of, of the play, but then they also have to grapple with the idea of, like, is this really necessary? And so I guess, at what point does it become not so much necessary as, just like, you're pushing a boundary? Well, I mean, the, the issue of youth theater is sort of separate because the, the things that they might be doing that are controversial are controversial only because it's youth theater. Um, you know, one of those shows is Rent. Yes. So um, that's that was controversial for a local youth theater to produce Rent only because of the content of Rent. Um, not, but you know, an adult company doing it doesn't freak anyone out. Um, so so no, I, I don't I don't see that. I mean, gosh, I, I'd almost wish to see more of that. Um, you know, I. I I think the purpose of art is to provoke, um, to provoke thought, to provoke emotion, um, to challenge society. Um, and, you know, I, I, I think we see a lot more war horses around town. There are very few companies, only a handful of companies that are on a regular basis doing current work. Um, and even that current work is only occasionally Okay, nearly naked theater always tries to do something outrageous. That's that's their identity, um, and yes, I think some of the things that nearly naked theater chooses, they choose because it fits their um, personality. Even if the script isn't very good, and it failed uh, when it premiered, 
um, that happens sometimes. But for the most part, no, I'm not. I'm not sure I agree with that. I, okay. I, I think, I think theater, in general, is so worried about surviving and keeping the doors open that I, I think there's more fear of offending. And you know, what does? Whenever there's a recession, the biggest instinct for many theater companies is what is something super popular we can put on that we know people are going to come see. Sometimes that works, and sometimes it really doesn't work. Um, but yeah, I think I think that I think fear of doing things that are edgy and possibly offensive uh, keeps most theater companies doing the tried and true and forever plaid and lend me a tenor and all that stuff that we've seen a billion times. And do we really need to see it more? Well, if they can sell the seats, sell those tickets, then yes, there are people who want to see it, and there's market for it, and that's great. But that's not why I go to the theater. Now, I, I, I know that you're a pretty outspoken advocate for new works in general, just the idea of, of supporting new works. I mean, how, how do you feel about like the amount of avenues and stuff for like local new works production? That type of thing. I mean, I know these a lot of these theaters. I mean, they're they're pretty established in themselves, and um, even when they're doing new works festivals, it's it's probably somebody who's had some experience behind them and stuff. I mean, do you feel like what what's going on now in town is is a a fair assessment of like new works being produced, or do you feel like they could do better? <laughs> it could be tremendously better. <laughs> um, look, here's here's a thing that I I can't often say can't say too often and, and can't say in print very often because it's just impolitic. Um, Phoenix is not as mature of an arts town as its population might suggest it would be. Um, this is true in almost every way except maybe the visual arts, um, which I'm going to bracket out because there are a lot of different dynamics that are going on there and I'm also less expert on it. But, you know, so we have a really great ballet that is uh, led by Eve Anderson, who's one of the last protégés of George Balanchine, the great choreographer from New York City Ballet. The New York Times will come out to review Ballet Arizona on occasion. That will tell you what a great company that is, despite being relatively small. But that's it. You know, there's one other professional company, meaning they pay their dancers and are a professional company-centered dance ensemble. But that's not a dance scene that, say, Chicago has or San Francisco has. It is just not on the same level. And anyone who wants to insist that we are on that same level culturally is basically engaging in civic boosterism. Um, and I've probably been guilty of that to some degree in my career. Um, we're, we're not there. Um, the theater scene here, we have one Lort Theater, that's the League of Resident Theaters, that's the elite tier for regional theaters, that's Arizona Theater Company. They do a world premiere every three years, maybe. Um, the most vital contribution to the national conversation in theater uh, probably comes from Child's Play, uh, the th professional theater for young audiences that uh, produces a lot more new work and develops new work and has that as a regular part of what they do. Um, they're the only company that does that on a regular basis and is on a regular, consistent, systematic basis doing that. 
and participating and adding to that national conversation. Nobody else is doing that. So if you go to a town like San Francisco or Chicago, you're going to find more companies that are doing that. So my favorite company in town, uh, the one that I would spend my personal money to go to for everything they do is Stray Cat Theater. I do not make any bones about that. Uh, their aesthetic, director Ron May's aesthetic, is, is the one that I personally feel most attached to. But, you know, his company is the second or third company to do that new show that was developed in New York or Chicago or San Francisco, right? So, and I'm not saying they should be different from they are. They are what they are and what they are is great. And I'm not the one to tell them what their mission is. But if we want to say we're a theater town, we need more than just one company that is consistently doing that kind of work and contributing to that conversation. And we do not have it. Okay. Now, I mean, to, to go off of that a little bit, too, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned the early naked earlier because that was kind of the example that I had in my mind, but I, I didn't know if I should bring it out or not, which, which is, like you said, you, you say what we're all thinking kind of thing. Um, but so, I mean, what makes the, the type of New York, uh, New York or at least lesser-known work being produced by a company like Nearly Naked different than, like, a lesser-known work being produced by Stray Cat? Well, I mean, it has everything to do with the personal aesthetic of uh, the artistic directors because those are both companies that were founded by one person and remain controlled by that one person and that one person picks every play they do. So they are, re they are very much a reflection of one person's aesthetic, um, which is different from a big company like Phoenix Theater or Arizona Theater Company, which are a reflection of trying to please a more broad audience. So that is the broad division. So, you know, what's the difference between Nearly Naked and, and Stray Cat? Is the difference between Damon Deering and Ron May. Um, Damon Deering has um, some particular interests. He loves raunchy um, musicals and uh, things that are campy with a lot of drag. They've done a lot of that kind of thing. Uh, he also loves particularly hard-hitting psychological dramas. Uh, some of their absolute best work has been like Equus mm -hmm. and um, the Shakespeare's R&J. Yeah. Um, which, you know, are his are Damon's serious side. But they're very much a reflection of his his personal interests. And I think that's good, great. I mean, they are small companies and small companies I think that's what they are, is they are um, and that's the thing, is if if you're going to a stray cat show, you're going because you dig Ron May's aesthetic. Um, and and that's a different thing than might be pulling you to be a season subscriber to Arizona Theater Company. Gotcha. Now, those smaller companies, I mean, if they hope to grow, do they need to be something more? Because, I mean, people might, might definitely fall in love with Damon Deering's aesthetic, or they might fall in love with Ron May's aesthetic. But, I mean, you mentioned in, like, a, the Arts versus Entrepreneurship article that you did a few years ago that... Uh, like because so many theaters are not for profit that should give them more leeway to be more explorative like that mm -hmm. but it's the shows like Arizona Theater Company that, that get the national attention that get maybe the kind of more profit and that, that side of things so do, do these kind of smaller companies need to be thinking about broader audiences at any point? It depends on what they want so the way you frame the question is if these companies want to grow so if Stray Cat Theater wants to grow to become a million-dollar-a-year professional equity house, they absolutely need to think differently 
Um, I don't think, and I, I don't, I've asked Ron May this question. <laughs> That's not what he wants. Um, because for all of the reasons that it would become a different thing, a different entity, a different company entirely. Um, so, you know, might some part of him uh, want to see that happen? Yes, but I don't, I don't see them moving in that direction. I mean, Stray Cat has a loyal audience um, that keeps coming back to uh, see what they're going to do. And they produce shows that in terms of the acting quality and the production quality um, are professional shows on a non-professional budget is the best way to put it. Um, you know, they, they punch above their weight uh, in terms of their budget. Um, now, would Ron May, and I'm so sorry, Ron, that I'm speaking for you right now. Um, I apologize. <laughs> Would he like to be able to pay a um, living wage to everyone who acts on his? He would love to be able to do that. But the economics of the kind of theater company he runs and the kind of shows he does does not make that possible. Um, I'm done speaking for you, Ron, sorry. <laughs> well, one kind of more question I, I like to ask. Um, I feel like I would be doing myself a disservice if I didn't ask like I feel like probably the most obvious question you get asked all the time is like kind of how do you separate the professional and the personal opinions how I mean how do you maintain those kind of personal relationships in town those networking ideas while still being true to yourself as a critic uh, on an ad hoc and imper in imperfect basis I mean um, it, it's really tough and you know there are there are reviews I've written where I've pulled punches uh, because of both the personal liking and the professional respect I had for some of the people involved. Um, I try not to do that, but you know we are all human and we inevitably fail at some point to do everything exactly the way we, we would hope that we would do them. Um, this is my favorite story about being a critic in town. Um, <laughs> Uh, I was walking across the street from my office to the Herberger, and I bumped into Matthew Weiner, um, who was the artistic director of Actors Theater, which no longer exists, one of the casualties of the economy. And I was chatting with him, um, and he had he had really helped me um, in the early days of uh, being the theater writer. Uh, one of the first things I did when I got the job full time was I spent four weeks with Matthew Weiner and the cast of Doubt, a parable by John Patrick Shanley, uh, observing all the rehearsals, um, interviewing them, and writing a week-by-week -week series about how a show comes together from the first table read uh, through tech uh, to opening night. And that was a great learning experience for me because it was a crash course. Um, one of the cast members of Doubt was Lily Richardson, who's a long time actor in this town, uh, and also the sister of musician Walt Richardson, um, who I had interviewed before I ever met her when I was covering local music. <laughs> so Lily Richardson walked up as Matthew Weiner and I were talking. And Matthew mentioned that I had just written a rave review of Lily in the play Fences, the August Wilson play, at um, Black Theater Tree. And she turned to me and said, oh, I'm sorry, I never read the reviews. And I said, bless you. <laughs> because I don't write those reviews for the artists. 
if I were writing from them for the artists, I would write them in a completely different way. I'm writing them for those people who saw the play and want to see if they agreed with the critic. Um, and that means that I have to do my absolute best to pretend that I don't know and like Lily Richardson and uh, give an honest reaction. It's hard. It, it's because in the end, as a critic, you're writing about your own experience watching the play. It is not like writing a play-by-play -play story of a basketball game. It's not about who drove the court and made the dunk or missed the layup. It's not about what happened. It's about your experience of engaging with this piece of art. And when I, as I've been covering this theater scene for years, and there are many people that I know personally, I've interviewed multiple times, am Facebook friends with, and crack jokes with on Facebook. Now, I am not, I don't hang out with any of these people socially um, because that is not appropriate, but they might not be technically my friends, but there are many of them people I would love to call a friend. Um, so part of my experience of watching that play is watching someone I've seen in 12 shows already. And there's no way to erase it. So you just, again, take every review, one review at a time, try to figure out what's the most interesting thing you have to say about this play. Um, and sometimes that might be something deeply personal. Um, I wrote one deeply personal review, um, which was almost embarrassingly a love letter to the local theater scene, which was a Phoenix Theater's production of Hairspray. Um, and because it was, it was about my experience of being a theater critic and getting to know these people and the fact that I was watching, I wasn't just watching the person who was playing these roles, I was, I, you know, um, I wasn't just watching uh, Mrs. Turnblad. I wasn't watching just watching Edna. I was watching Scott, who I'd also seen play Wilbur in Charlotte's Web at Child's Play and had interviewed and, you know, I was watching people that you know, I might not know closely, but I know to some degree and have personal ideas about and have seen over and over again. And that's just different from walking in to an Arizona Theater Company show, which has probably been cast by professionals who live in LA or Seattle. Um, and maybe I've seen them once before, maybe, but it's not the same as people who are in a community that I cover as a reporter. Again, it goes back to those two hats. Yeah. Not only have I seen these people in multiple shows, I've, I've talked to them, sat and had coffee with them like we're doing right now and had these types of conversations with them. Um, you have to try to write the review for the reader, but you're who you are and you have the experience that you have and that's all you have to bring to the table in the end. Now, I mean, considering that people who are listening to this in one way or another have probably been on the other side of a criticism at some point in their life as, as a working artist in some way, um, since you've had so much experience reviewing different art forms, different artists and musicians, actors, whoever, um, what do you feel like is something that is important for those artists to keep in mind when being reviewed? I mean, not everybody is going to stay away from their reviews. <laughs> yeah, what? Well, but I've already said it. The thing yeah. to keep in mind is they're not writing it for you. Um, I'm not giving notes. I'm not trying to give constructive criticism on how they might make the show better because it's too late for that. They've been through tech. The show is set. Um, so, you know, maybe if, they, if it is possible 
to set aside the personal hurt of having someone. I mean, look, I understand. An artist, as I said about myself as a writer, and as you're, you are expressing yourself. So when you, you are putting yourself out there for public consumption and to have someone nitpick and, you know, second guess all your decisions, that is incredibly difficult to do. It's incredibly brave to do. Um, and it, it can't possibly be easy to read that negative criticism, especially that is not, was not written for you, um, was not how someone would have phrased it if they were trying to communicate with you directly. Um, if you can possibly set all that aside and try to learn from, agree or disagree, but try to see what that person was seeing, um, try to learn from it. But yeah, the number one thing is just remember they're not, they're not writing for you. They're writing for their audience. I like that. And I think that's a good time to wrap up to the last couple of questions I like to ask everybody. Um, so normally I like to ask, you know, if there's um, any artists in town that you want to give a shout out to any, any, from any discipline, anybody that you want to give some recognition to. Sure. So I've already told everyone um, <laughs> who my <laughs> personal loves. favorite company yeah, yeah. is. The shout out I would give is to Rising Youth Theater which is something like five years old. It was founded by Xanthia Walker and Sarah Sullivan, who both worked with Child's Play, uh, whom I've mentioned before. Um, they create new work um, in collaboration with local youths and sometimes adults that addresses their real lives and the issues that they face in their real life. Um, I've been to several of their shows. They are not for me. They are performed by a mix of professional theater professionals and, you know, 10 to 16 year old regular kids. And as a theater goer, that is not where I lay down my dollar when I have to lay down my dollar. But in terms of a company that has a very specific vision and mission and is trying to make the arts relevant to more than just white people with an income of 70000 or more a year, they are the people I would give a shout out to. They're awesome. Um, and uh, I absolutely have huge respect for them and the work that they do. Excellent. Yeah, no, they do some really great stuff there. Light Rail Place, I don't know when the next time they're coming around then. Very interesting stuff. Um, all right, so any kind of personal projects or sites to plug? So uh, the only thing I would plug is uh, follow me on Facebook, follow me on Twitter. Um, and occasionally when you see them, click on the articles. Um, because arts journalism is in trouble. Uh, a couple of years ago, there was an article that came out, um, how you can save arts journalism. And it was literally someone suggesting that every day, as you as a concerned citizen who wants the arts to get covered, should make it a point to go to 10 articles about the arts and click on those articles and not just click on them but scroll through all the way to the bottom to make sure that the computer knows that you didn't just click in and out. It did not recommend you actually read those 10 articles. It was like this call for people to pretend to read articles in order to save arts journalism. Um, I thought this was the most ridiculous thing I had ever heard because if you are saving arts journalism by not reading the articles, then what are you saving arts journalism for? Please help us make more articles um, to pretend to read. Yeah. Right, and you know, if, if that's what you're saving it for, what you're saving it for is because you think you need arts journalism in order to sell tickets to the arts. And I'm telling you, that is not gonna save arts journalism. That's not the job of a journalist. 
I am not the person who sells tickets. That is not my job. That's your job. Um, so if you think the arts should be written about, um, you should make a point to read it every once in a while. It's also my job to figure out something you actually want to read, and I will do my best or my worst. <laughs> Who knows what I will do, but the only thing I would plug is make sure I show up in your Facebook feed so every once in a while you can click on that story. And are people able to kind of interact with you directly in Twitter and Facebook if they do have something they want to hear about? Uh, absolutely. Um, so I have, a, I have an official page, which is facebook.com slash Theater which I started uh, when that was like a good idea uh, before Facebook changed the rules and made that a very bad idea. Um, but you can also follow anyone's personal account on uh, Facebook. And as long as the posts that they make are public, uh, you can see and interact with all of those posts. So when I'm on Facebook, I make a lot of public posts and I do make some friends only posts, which uh, include you know hundreds of people that are not actually my friends because <laughs> they're just people I have friended or been friended by. Um, and I'm not picky about that. Um, so yeah, you absolutely can. And I, I, we would love to see people interacting. I, I don't, I've never demanded anyone agree with my opinion. I'm absolutely fine um, if someone wants to, I'm not just fine. I would love to hear people give their own reactions to reviews. And of course that does, that does happen. Um, but yes, I'm there and I'm, interactive and my phone number and my email address are printed at the bottom of every article. I am totally not inaccessible to anybody. I'm very easy to find. You found me. Pretty quick. <laughs> and I will say you responded pretty quickly as well. So that is, uh, he's definitely an interactive guy. Um, so last thing I'd like to ask is just if, if you were to see an artist, not necessarily even in, in your line of work, but somebody who is maybe trying to do something similar, um, trying to get started, what, would, what one piece of advice would you want to give them? So if we're talking about artists, as opposed to journalists. Um, first of all, there are some very similar challenges facing both industries. Uh, even though journalism is generally for-profit and the arts are generally non-profit, um, we're all facing the same fight for people's attention in the digital age. Um, so what I'm about to say does apply to journalism, but this would be more specifically for artists. And I don't have advice. I'm not gonna tell anyone what to do because I'm not the person to do that. Um, but I, I would just say, know what you're getting into. Um, so if you're in the arts, your podcast is called Starving Artists. There's a reason that's a cliche. Um, the arts are a lottery career, like sports. There are a lot more people who want to do that for a living than the market has money to pay them to make a living. So for every successful Broadway actor there are a hundred people who are never going to make a full-time comfortable living as an actor. And most working actors that I know, particularly in a town like this, don't make their full-time career. They all have day jobs or they cobble together a career and an income at multiple jobs. They teach, they, they you know, do all sorts of things to get by. Um, we may feel as people who care about the arts, that that is wrong uh, and that should change. But guess what? It ain't gonna change. That ain't ever gonna change. There are always gonna be more people who wanna be a famous painter, wanna be a Broadway actor, wanna be a star in Hollywood, then there is room for that to happen. So the only people who get to that top are people who are talented, 
and hardworking and lucky. You need all three to happen uh, for you to, to be successful. And I'm going to define success as being able to make a comfortable living at, by doing what you love. Um, so you need to know that. And that doesn't mean that that's, there's only one career path. It means, maybe it means you need to um, decide that you're going to work a normal day job and theater is going to be a hobby. Uh, maybe it means um, you are going to say, screw that, I'm going to make it if I try, New York, <laughs> New York, um, and I'm going to put every ounce of my being into making this happen. First of all, that increases your chances of success that you go all in on it, but you need to understand it's a lottery <laughs> and you might not make the NBA. Um, so just be realistic about what is what are the economics of this field that you want to work in and make your decisions accordingly. Excellent. I mean, would you change uh, any of that advice as far as someone directly going into criticism? Oh, criticism is dying. I mean... Um, so don't, is your advice. <laughs> well, look, the fact that the Arizona Republic still has a theater critic um, is in some ways kind of amazing because there are major newspapers in big cities that have bigger art scenes than Phoenix has who have decided that they no longer need that kind of thing. That happened in Portland, Oregon, happened in Philadelphia. The Philadelphia Inquirer decided they no longer needed a theater critic. This was years ago. Um, everybody wants to be a movie critic, like everyone wants to be an NBA star. You know what, how hard it is? You know, we talk about trying to get clicks. Um, my advantage is I'm one of only two or three reviews of that local show. If you're reviewing the latest Batman movie, how many reviews are online of the Batman movie? You are competing with all of that noise. So, yeah, it's the same advice. Be aware of the what you're trying to get into um, and just how difficult it is to rise above that noise. Um, everyone wants to be a movie critic, but not everyone has tremendously insightful things to say about movies and not everyone is going to be Wesley Morris it's my favorite critic uh, he's no longer a uh, film critic per se he's at, now at the New York Times and he's a culture he's a critic at large um, but you know he's brilliant and that's why he got a job at the New York Times is because he's brilliant and if you're brilliant absolutely do everything you can to follow that career path um, me um I'm willing to admit that I am not the most brilliant person in the room. I am now able to admit that. Um, and I'm someone who took a career, uh, took the opportunities that came my way. Um, I love theater. I am passionate about theater. It is not the only thing I love. It is not the only thing I am passionate about. And it is not the only thing I could be happy writing about. I'd love to be a movie critic too. I would love to be the guy that writes about TV all the time. I would love to be an editorial writer and be E.J. Montini and give my political opinions um, on our website every day. I would love to do all of those things. Um, I have the job that I have, and I have that job because I went along the path and took the best opportunities that I had. Um, I know that there are people who, in the arts community who might feel that they deserve more, that they deserve someone for whom theater is the be-all, end-all. 
And all I would say is refer them back to the, the expertise conversation is because there are, those people exist. They are already there for you. Uh, I can give you the website right now for the person who um, loves all theater and never dislikes it um, and never has anything negative to say. Um, and that person is there for you. Um, but I am who I am and is, that's all I can be. <laughs> All right. Uh, know what you're getting into. You are who you are. All right. Well, thank you so much for your time, Kerry. I appreciate it. Uh, thank you. I appreciate it. Special thanks to Nick Machete for writing our theme music and Taylor Machete for all of her support. If you are enjoying the podcast so far, don't forget to follow us and leave nice ratings on Facebook, Twitter, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Pinecast.co. And if you or someone you know is pursuing something artistic in the Phoenix area and you'd like to be on the podcast, write to me at starvingartistsphx at gmail.com.